stepped into the garden after midnight for a taste of some white light like I had had before. summer night I like that you guys dig that were you jamming on that man I was you have been listening to Celeste Griffin from the Monarchs out of Austin Texas Uh, it's an old song it's been around for a couple years but uh, I just heard this song on Spotify and it came on and I was like whoa I was blown away by the voice and the song you know as a songwriter myself I know when someone has it. And this girl, man, that voice, she's got it. The songwriting, the structure, the style, it's all there, man. You either have it or you don't, you know? People work years and years to perfect perfect songwriting, you know? This girl's got it. I don't know how she did it, but man, what a cool song. And, uh, you know, it's distinctive, it's unique. You know, like Dylan, Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell... You know, they all come from this interesting place, and it just works. You know, I can tell uh, within 20 seconds if I'm into a song. I heard this jam, Come On and Move Me, by the Monarchs. And I was like, that's it. I'm going to open the episode with that song. Episode 38 goes to the Monarchs. They get it, you know, because I want to share things. You know, it's cool. It's introducing you guys to something new, something fresh. Maybe you go down the rabbit hole, and all of a sudden uh, you're exploring... New music, because that's what this podcast is about, Inside the Whale, doing something new, doing something fresh, right? Man, I love it when people tell me about a cool band, someone I should check out. So I'm trying to pay it forward to you guys, you know? That being said, how are you doing, Nantucket? How's the fall treating you? We're in it, man. I love it. Blue sky today. Gorgeous, gorgeous fall day. And I am coming to you, Inside the Whale fans, as a married man. We did it. My big wedding has come and gone, folks. But uh, wow, what an incredible experience. And I I never thought I would be referring to my wedding like that. You know, someone who thought uh, I was indifferent towards marriage and and weddings. But uh, I got to say, my wedding was amazing. So many amazing people came from all over the country to watch us stand in our front yard and our garden. It was a beautiful experience. You know, I got to tell you folks, I wasn't a wedding guy. But now having gone through that experience of the wedding, and I realize uh, now uh, the importance and the significance of uh, bringing all those friends and family together for one night, uh, for sharing that moment with all those cool people. And uh, the band was amazing. 
band was amazing, and I should mention my partner, my best friend, Amy, stood there under a harvest moon, and we celebrated our wedding. I uh, wouldn't have it any other way, babe, but uh, we did it. It uh, was beyond my expectations. And the band Los Salsalantes, my old musician friends from New York, came up, and they crushed it. Kept the party dancing all night. God, we made it to 11.30, which is uh, beats the 10 o'clock cutoff. So I feel like we uh, got one past the the man. Danced all night. Even got to jam with my old band, The Sweet Ones. Cops shut us down at 11.30. Man, I'd be lying if I didn't say I had a little post-wedding depression. That week after, it was such a uh, such a rush having all those friends and family there. And then, then it just kind of drops out. But uh, nonetheless, the wedding's over. And now I'm getting back to focusing on Inside the Whale. So here it is. Episode 38, folks. My guest today is Jill Meridian. Jill is a healer and energy worker, and her story uh, that you're going to hear in our conversation is a fascinating story. It's the story of the evolution of a healer and someone that uh, switched gears and became uh, an energy worker. And some of you are probably saying, well, what is an energy worker? Well, you're going to have to listen to the conversation and have Jill explain it. I saw Jill at the Nantucket Project a few weeks back, and we got talking about uh, how Nantucket was interesting. We got in this conversation that Nantucket was a place where people could reinvent themselves. You know, and that little light bulb went off in my head. I said, aha, that's a podcast. Jill's perfect for it. And uh, I knew my intuition was right. She is a strong, powerful woman that's lived an amazing life, and uh, the journey of her evolution uh, in the healing arts is one that uh, needs to be told. She's an important person out here in Nantucket. And uh, I'm glad that she took the time to sit down with me. She has a business out here, SynergeticWay.com. You can check that out. I'll, I'll make sure you guys get that info. But uh, nonetheless, a fascinating story of someone that's in the healing arts. And you know, Nantucket is certainly a place with a lot of different energies going every which way. So we need someone like Jill Meridian out here to help us balance that energy. She has an interesting take on how she practices and what her role is. You know, she started in construction as a construction worker, female, all-female construction company on Nantucket. And uh, I'm not going to spoil too much. I'm going to let you hear uh, our conversation. But, uh, you know, that led into the world of healing arts. And how did she make that jump? Well, you're going to have to listen to the conversation awesome, cool, fascinating woman, Jill Meridian. So let's go to it, guys. Let's listen to my conversation with Jill Meridian, energy healer. Here we go, folks. It's time to go Inside the Whale. Guys, now you might whale. Show us your crooked jaw. Show us your wrinkled brow. Rise. He rises! I find this stuff even more interesting. Your curiosity, like, <laughs> tell me what what do you what would you like to know? Well, I'm wondering what the podcast sort of um, flavor is. Is it upbeat? Is it 
like curiosity? Is it fun loving? What is the? I don't think I. I would hate to put any sort of parameters like What's that. The I name of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jill. It's called Inside the Whale. Okay. Here, get up on the mic. Here, All we're right. gonna right. we're gonna teach you about radio here. Okay. This is a, a pseudo radio, okay. internet radio, as right. they, as they say. Um, but it can be anything you really want. Okay. I don't have any parameters. I have no. Uh, right. There's there's no main object. I'm not trying to do or reach any you know major breakthrough sometimes it's or a particular audience or a particular audience it's just mm-hmm. it's more about like uh having a conversation okay. with, with with people that i find interesting okay and you know <clears throat> since we had that conversation at the nantucket project which i think we should probably talk about because mm-hmm. that was pretty interesting you worked there right you were working Sort of. At the Nantucket. I was volunteering. You were volunteering, but yeah. you got to see Deepak Chopra speak. Mm-hmm. How was that? Are we on? We can be on. Tell I'm just, me when. We're rolling. I mean, okay. it's rolling. we've been rolling since you got here. Okay. But I think, uh, yeah, don't worry about it. All right. Is this um, is this your first time you've ever sat down and done a recorded type interview before? No. But yeah. No. I've done national radio, and I've done. Um, local and I've done sort of NPR local but it's all ready set go right this is a little more free form yeah. but I think the reason that uh, that you're here is because we had that come I saw you at the Nantucket project and we got talking about uh, self-reinvention yeah. okay which I thought was an, an interesting uh, talking point and something that would be perfect for Inside the Whale, which is the name of this podcast, okay. just in case you didn't okay. know. I didn't. You didn't know. She knew nothing about it. I like that. <laughs> You're like, I don't even know who you are. Right, right. Um, but before we get into that, we need some context. And we also, we, we had a quick conversation, and as we were talking at the Nantucket Project, I kept thinking, oh my God, I don't want to talk anymore because this is perfect for a podcast episode. Because you had talked about how you thought Nantucket had changed. There's some, uh, I don't know if you use the word integrity of Nantucket had changed. That might be me. But things had changed. And I thought that was a really, you offered a pretty valid perspective on some of the changes. So I thought that would be really interesting to talk about. But um, I guess some of your background first. All right. Well, I've been here for 30 years, which is really surprising that I can say that. But, she said it with a smile. Yeah, folks. I did. Um, Thirty years. Yeah, and for the most part, we were talking. You were asking me some questions, and I said that um, one of the beauties, beautiful things about Nantucket is that there is an acceptance for people to reinvent themselves that I haven't seen happen most places. So I think there's shifting tides here. There's shifting sands they're shifting everything and people are very familiar with people coming and going things um by the nature of being out at sea being somewhat unpredictable i think it adds to this kind of general um willingness to believe in change Wow, which is the irony. Wow, Nantucket is identified with its history and not changing anything. So it's like at the, in one way, they're super identified with, it's super identified with its history. 
and we have all these you know institutions that that are focused on making sure we maintain our history well at the same time there are so many visionaries that came out of Nantucket and people who were um, known for thinking outside the box and breaking ground Mariah Mitchell being one of the first female the first female astron- astronomers you know it's like I didn't know that I believe that's true I hope I'm not speaking out of well it's a podcast you yeah. can speak out of turn yeah but um, I, I you know the, the women took over the island and did so much while the men were out to sea so that in and of itself was unique for the times interesting so is that something you connected with when you first got out here? Or? No, I didn't connect with anything. <laughs> I connected with the ocean. I didn't know where I was going. Well, let's get to that. So okay. where did you start out? Where are you from? All right. I'm from upstate New York near the Saratoga area. Okay. I went to Boston to go to college. I was at Simmons College. All girls. All women's. Yep. And um, there I studied design and in the tail end of my education, I could have graduated early, and instead I took on women's studies, which was um, a very new discipline. Nobody knew much about it, and the reason I wanted to do that was because I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted because it was so undefined as a discipline at that point, but a potential second major. So what I did was I did an independent uh, semester abroad and I created my own curriculum and you know extended my college into the fourth year where'd you go Simmons no no oh, abroad where did I go um, I went to Europe I was it was part of an uh, organization put together or a program put together by Antioch College gotcha and it was a bunch of us from around the country who were all, I mean, it's a cra- it was a crazy program, but we, we started out in um, the Netherlands, Amsterdam, and basically we had a notebook that someone had compiled based on make, making phone calls and finding out if there were people willing to talk to us or house us or so crazy pre-internet <laughs> yeah pre-internet yeah I had this little you like, had like a oh, sorry, loose leaf binder um, and so we would land and we would be exposed to certain things that might inspire us we were at a, a music festival I think first thing we went to and we were to come up with our own curriculum and theme and design our semester and you know hope for the best in terms of getting credits um, but we went from the Netherlands to Germany to US, Yugoslavia to uh, I think we, we ended up in England in London and I was focused on um, communication gotcha and so after in, after college you go where? Well, actually, while I was at school, because I was a design major, I put together a lot of resumes for people. And I 
would compile the information and design the resume so that it presented well to the potential employer. And while I was doing that, I thought to myself, ah, I, I really don't want to be hired to do whatever I'm going to do by a piece of paper. Right. I wanted more personal interaction. So um, that was the first thought. The second thought was, I don't want to really go right it back into school for my master's. But I knew I wanted to continue. And I was poised to do architecture. And so I thought, what could I do between kind of like the gap year between your BA and your you know MA? Okay, now what year is this? This would be finishing. I was, I was senior year of college, finishing, thinking, I'm going to go to graduate school, but I don't want to go immediately. Yeah. So um, I was working in the media center of the college, and I knew I wanted to be an architect. And some man said, oh, you know, my wife did this program on Nantucket with some woman named Kate Mitchell, who has a construction company out there. And she, she did like this two-week workshop on building. And I thought, oh, that could be interesting. And or she might know somebody I should call in the New England area. How does one learn a little bit about carpentry? Because I thought if I learned a little bit about carpentry, I'd be a better designer. And I thought that would be fun to be out, you know, in the air and not in school and maybe work with a crew of people <laughs> and, you know, all that. So I had a willingness to consider carpentry. And I called this woman named Kate Mitchell cold call on a Friday afternoon. She picked up the phone. And you said, hey, I want to work. No, I just wanted, I just, actually I wanted to tell her or ask her if she had any pointers. And she was pretty open quite immediately to considering me as a hire for her. And I was like, whoa, whoa, I don't know anything about carpentry, you know, I'm not a carpenter. And she said it didn't matter and to think about it. And I said, well, I couldn't possibly do it until September. I have a trip planned after college. She was accommodating to it all. and. Um, she said, think about it. Send me a postcard. Let me know what you think. And so in the middle of my trip abroad, I sent a postcard and said, yeah, I'll consider this. And so we met in Boston and had an interview, um, still having no idea about life on Nantucket. And I interviewed and got hired. So it was a choice I made, but I chose to come here sight unseen. And I was a little surprised. <laughs> Now, what year did you get here? So, 86. So this is 1986. Yeah. So you arrived the fall Yeah. to start banging nails? Right. And literally, I have a new car. Uh, it's packed. The door of the ferry opens. We're approaching the dock. There's somebody standing out there going, waving at me as I'm driving off. I was told what she would look like. She gets in my car and she said, okay, we're going to go to a job site. So she, right to work. <laughs> right to work. So I didn't unpack a thing. I just went right to the job site. Do you remember where it was? Yep. Where was I it? I do. Bart and Tom's house, the hair concern, the owners of the hair concern. Do you okay. know Bart and Tom? I don't. Ah, I don't. Where is that? Um, that's on Old South Road at Key Post, 
key post corner okay. is where their hair concern the shop is but I went to their house which was off the Pulpus Road so you pull up and it's a con- full on construction site no we were doing they were doing a renovation and there was they were close to completion and there was a deck going on and I literally and I'm no exaggeration I was handed like this bucket of nails and a board and I was given instruction about how you actually hammer a 16 penny nail into a board, not using your wrist, but using your arm, you know, your shoulder, and letting the hammer do the work. And um, and I, my job for that afternoon was to take this bucket of nails that ranged from 16 penny to finished nails and just fill the board and do my best to um, do it properly in terms of the use of the hammer. That was the goal that day. So now let's give it some context. Is, is the Are you one of the only women on the job site? Are there other women no, there? The whole... Like that's a pretty male dynamic to be thrown into it, right? Yeah, well, that was the thing. This was a women-owned... <laughs> all women construction company on Nantucket and they built custom homes and side by side in terms of competition for some of the biggest most beautiful houses here and so this was the real deal but it was definitely um, different because it was a woman's crew and it was why I said yes because they told me I'd have to I'd have to um, sign a two-year contract because they were going to teach me everything I needed to learn to build a house. And I thought, that sounds pretty good because that's basically what I want to know to be a good designer. <laughs> now, what was, tell me about the, what was the vibe like in 1986? I love hearing people's reflection about like... Oh, what, they, there was a lot of not so <laughs> flattering things said about us. Really? Oh yeah. Give it. Let's. No, I. Why not? Because <laughs> they were really rude. Were they? Because yeah. no one liked the idea of. Yeah. What, like the bitch crew or something? And or? It got worse. Really? Yeah. I can't say it on. Yes, you can. <laughs> no. This is his. It's part of history. I mean, I can only imagine. I mean, an all-female yeah. construction crew. There was resentment. Of course. Yeah. So there was some. Um, and then to com- to compete, you know, yeah. like with having to go bid on jobs. Right. And you know, all in all, we did, um, I think we were respected because the work stood for itself. And when it came to the homeowners, they appreciated the women on the job site because of the most simple things like cleaning up after yourself. (laughs) So, you know, the, the job site was always you know, picked up and organized and um, there weren't cigarette butts and all those things that homeowners are not so thrilled about when um, a crew is doing their job but not thinking about it. It's pretty progressive as you're talking to me. I'm thinking that's a pretty progressive type of uh, organization, you know, to have an all women construction crew. Yeah. It's, it's just not, it's uncommon. And the other thing that made us a little bit sought after, I would think, I would say, is that we were 
sort of known for our willingness to pay attention to the real details. And I'm not saying a man's crew doesn't, but um, there's an intimidation factor that comes when the contractor is not in such agreement with whatever the homeowner wants to do that might be incredibly fussy. So is it your contention that the female dynamic somehow has some more of a, uh, can, I guess, accountability, or not accountability, but can can get along better, maybe has a better client um, relations with customers? I don't know if I would say that, but I would say that the feedback was a lot of appreciation for our willingness to accommodate the very specific interests that might require it to be done, take longer, be more complicated, be fussier. I guess I would say fussier. Yeah. Well, I mean, just at the construction out here now, there's so many different types of people moving out and there are different contractors to serve I think the, different people's design needs and, yeah. and, and construction needs, right? Yeah. And, you know, um, there are anybody will do anything you know when it comes to construction the know-how has to be there the willingness to pay for what it takes to have to happen but we were just known for the attention to detail not saying that a men's crew wouldn't have detail in it but it was um, easier it for the woman of the house to say, but I want it this way. <laughs> right. I, I can just imagine, like, so this is 1986, so if you're trying to get, was it hard? If you had a subcontractor come in there? We had our subs that really enjoyed working with us, and most of those men are still around here. Yeah, well, I was gonna, that was my next question. What were some of the companies that were oh, around? Uh, you're going to test my memory. A lot of them. All right, well, who's still around? Um, I can't come up with names. Of construction companies? No, not companies. They're individuals. Oh, okay. Um, well, that's right. You don't have to... I can't come up with the names. But um, those people that, you know, were your competitors, I can imagine. Jeff Nichols. He was a electrician. There he you was, go. And he's still around. <laughs> yeah. Jeff Nichols is still yeah. around. And does he have sons that do electricity? I don't know. I would like imagine a... maybe. I don't know. So I, I want to get to the point where so, that, we, that we're here today while yeah. we're, we're talking about yeah. construction. You yeah. came here to work construction. But then, you know, the idea that we can all shift gears and make career changes is something that uh, is interesting. Yeah. And so you're story was interesting and so I guess if you could just yeah you would say one would say what the heck you know what a radical change to go from carpentry to um, healing work but you know I had an experience in my family and mind you I they're on one side of the family they're all um, pharmacists and dentists. So Who's that, your mom's side or dad's? My dad? father's side of the family. So your father was a pharmacist? No, my father was a retailer, furniture store, but there's his uncle and all of their kids 
which was a pretty significant number, got into pharmacy or dentistry or doctoring in some way. So anyways, I was at a dinner table, very long dinner table with a lot of people, family gathering type thing, and I was catching some grief over the fact that I was a carpenter, now I'm a healer, what the heck, you know? And my father had never been incredibly supportive of me making that transition. So I was quite surprised when he threw his glass down on the table and commanded everybody's attention and said, basically, in Armenian, I'm Armenian, in Armenian, there's a word that's hedeket is the word, and it means enough. And so he had heard the grief I was getting, and he put his glass down. Who's giving you grief, brother? Do you have brothers Uh, or sisters? An uncle and a cousin. And one was a scientist and one was a pharmacist. Now, are they Armenian as well? Were they? Um, yeah. Um, the uncle wasn't. It was the wife of my Armenian um, aunt. I'm trying to get the feeling for the yeah. dinner table. Are yeah. people screaming in Armenian or is oh, it in no, English? No. Oh, no, It's all okay. in English. Okay. But my father, when he f- was serious about it, something's enough, you know, stop. Um, he used the Armenian word. And... Um, so he just threw his glass down on the table and commanded everybody's attention. And like it went from, you know, a dull roar to silence. And he said, enough. Let's just say Jill's in very good company. There has been someone in history who went from carpenter to healer. And it completely changed the course of like the family dynamic and the way they were behaving with me. And of course he was referring to Jesus. I was just (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, wow, like I hadn't even thought of that. So he was just making his point. Was he a religious guy? Mm, Quietly. He never forced it on us, but he was quietly religious. I wish more people were like that. I like quiet religiousness. It's just more appropriate. (laughs) <laughs> so I I realized I had his support in a certain way, but he was um, a little bit of my opposer all the way along because I was breaking ground in a field or getting into a field that was so unknown. And, you know, as a Armenian father, first generation born in America, you know, his biggest concern was that I would have security financially. I got you. Get married, you'd have kids, you'd follow the form. Right. Big fat Greek wedding was like... Gotcha. See, now that makes everything contextually more interesting. So knowing that you came from that background, that kind of family, and then going out and saying, I'm going to be a carpenter and do something that typically, in his mind, obviously... Carpentry was okay for the two years because he was not very skilled with a hammer or any other tools and he was very dependent on people to take care of whatever needed to be fixed so he was cool with me learning how to be self-sufficient in that way he thought that was great he didn't really want to see me do it forever but um, he was totally fine with me learning how to take care of property Um, but when it came to switching into 
the healing arts, specifically energy work. Right. That was a little obscure and hard for him to wrap his head around. I think that there's, and we should, we're definitely going to get to that okay. the energy work, because I think there's still some people that don't don't understand that. It just it sounds like a bunch of uh, a contrived hocus pocus stuff. But I think the moment that I want you to talk about is the where that moment while you're I'm assuming you're banging nails somewhere. You're on a job site. You've been thinking about this thing, but that moment where you're like, I'm gonna. I'm, this is it. Like I'm making the exit. When, oh well, that because that I think those are super important yeah. moments as people when we have those moments where you're like, I gotta make a change. I can't do this anymore. Were you freezing cold on some roof, no. or were you driving some? What What was the moment? Well, there's a big moment. Um, as I said, I signed a two-year contract, and at one year and like nine and a half months, um. I had an event where I threw my back out and it was not your average throwing your back out because I had already collapsed twice, maybe three times prior to that, not really understanding the severity of my condition. And so when I collapsed on the job site and I was then laying on my back for weeks not knowing what was wrong with me. What were you doing when you collapsed? What was the... I think I was hoisting. I was, um, I did compound cutting, which means the kind of um, multiple angles on one board. And in this case, we were doing what's called a roof rafters with a bird's mouth. Um, it's It's a particular angular cut on the... For a beam. For a beam. Gotcha. Rafters. And so I was hoisting in soft sand these probably two by tens up to the second floor. And, you know, we had our ways to do these things safely, but nevertheless, you're still handling a big two by four. I mean, two by ten. And um, probably it was at least 14 feet. So I collapsed under the stress of that and... um, Recalled the fact that I had collapsed in my life three times prior to that. I had been told, told by a couple of doctors that I would never be physically active, and I kept um, sort of disproving them and becoming active again. And then subsequently not really appreciating the severity of the issue. Okay. And so there I was doing something that anybody with a back issue like I had shouldn't have been doing, but I was not aware of how real it was. I collapsed again, and then I was on my back, and I was reading something, and uh, it was a it was a program on healership, and it was on the Cape. And I had done a number of things that were advertised on this page, which was weird. It was like, how, you know, it was odd. It was advertised, and I just thought, oh, I've already done three of these six things on this page. I'm what were the three? Them. I don't remember, but I think that program, Antioch pro- program, was advertised. Something about Antioch College. And so I, I decided to call this person up and just ask about this program that was she was doing and it was like a 
over the winter. It would have been over the winter. And she asked me to come and interview. And I, three weeks on my back, I was able to stand up again. And I went over there. And um, she told me about the program. And I just felt like I needed to deal with whatever was going on. And I didn't really know what it was. But I felt like my mental state was so obstinate around mm, giving in to being weakened that I weakened by your back pain or just other mental stuff the concept of I was an athlete in college I was a collegiate serious national competition level athlete and this was completely what was your sport against my grain it was rowing so how did we get out? I don't believe we skipped right over that. You well, were, I collapsed were, on the dock and rowing, but I... Okay, so in I, college you had a back injury rowing. Well, I collapsed first in high school. And then I, you know, got back on my feet, and then I collapsed in college on the dock. And then I got... I went to an orthopedic surgeon who said, I can't help you, but you'll be lucky if you're physically active and you don't end up in a wheelchair and that was very depressing. So what was it, like a disc thing or something? What, what was no, the... No, I have, I have an issue that's, they call it a spondylolisthesis, but it's um, it's a broken L5. It's in two, two pieces that have been separated from each other long enough that they just are independent of each other in a way. And right, as opposed to being fused. connected, fused together. Yeah. So they just kind of... And sometimes people are born with this situation, because the L5 is the last one before the sacrum. But this came from an accident I had. And why? Because I was comp- I was in competition with my cousins on a swing set, going as high as I could at age seven, and the chain broke. And I flew off the, off the swing, and I landed on my butt hard. And I didn't know at that time, neither did my parents, that it had the impact that it had on my spine. And so at age 17, I had an experience where I couldn't walk and I didn't know why. And a chiropractor told my mother, wow, this girl has a lot of tricky situations going on. And my mother was just like, well, can you get her walking? You, you couldn't walk? No, I couldn't get out of a chair. I had no idea what was going on. I couldn't. So you woke up, is this... No, it was a situation where a family was watching a movie and everybody gets up from the movie and I couldn't get up and it was probably positional because chairs matter for me. Um, And now I understand the condition. But I could move my feet. I wasn't paralyzed, but I couldn't get up. I I couldn't actually stand up, which was a little alarming. But like I said, once I got rolling again, somebody repositioned the bone, I didn't know exactly what I was dealing with until I was about 25. And um, so this situation caused me to regrettably have to say I can't do this carpentry and move into this program where I was really going to like deal with myself it was like heal me first which was a program that was going to introduce me to a lot of different healing modalities and I thought that would be good you can start to hear from what I'm saying uh, if I have to do something I might as well make it useful 
So I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the practicality of learning more about the healing arts while I'm getting yourself. Okay. taking care of myself in an effort maybe to have something else I could do because I had discovered while I was carp doing carpentry and doing drafting and designing of small things that I didn't like it. It was not really what I wanted to do. Now, how old you are? How old are you at this point? Uh, twenty-one, probably. Okay, so you're still in that. You're still a kid. I think yeah. when you're twenty-one, you're young. Yeah. Um, so I had already sort of taken the uh, focus of architecture off the table and thought, well, what else am I going to do? You know, like what else would interest me? And then this back situation, sort of. Um, I don't know, held me hostage to start to think about it more seriously. And when I came back from that program, I think it was when I came back, it might have actually been, no, I'm, I'm mistaken. Bef how I got back on my feet was that I went to see a doctor here on Nantucket who was beloved, and his name was Dr. Brooks Walker, and he was an osteopath. And he was the only guy in town who could deal with backs. There were no chiropractors. And um, so I went to see him, and everybody sort of had the same opinion of like, what the heck, you know? You lay on his table in this office that looks like, looked like it was like freeze frame from 1940. Right. And um, he sat at the head of the table around with his hands around your head, barely touching you for about 20 minutes and then you got up and left feeling better and <laughs> in theory in theory well no in practice and and people referred to him as um magic hands having magic hands and so i was on his table and he was doing just that seemed like nothing except i was feeling what he was doing in my hips from my head and I was saying, well, how is it possible that what you're doing there is obviously affecting my hip? I can feel it. And he said to me at that time, if you can feel what I'm doing, you should be doing what I'm doing for work. And that started the seed. Okay. And um, so then I went off to the Cape and I studied with this woman who, you know, had a we might refer to it as a kind of spa now, but it had acupuncture, chiropractic, massage, all these things. Holistic, holistic type healing. healing under one roof. And she had pulled together a group of, I think it was like six or seven of us. And we were committed to doing this work for six months. And we met three hours a day, three days a week. And it was an intensive learning process. And what was her background like? How did she get into the healing? You know, she was in she was into polarity therapy, which was really uh, not very well known. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting to me because I know at the at the time there's this kind of, that kind of work, acupuncture and stuff, wasn't mainstream. Not at all. None of that stuff. It was sort of like kooky kind right. of. And she was a radio DJ actually. And, uh, or a disc jockey of some sort and her other area was astrology and hands-on body work with polarity therapy and then she had this whole 
building that was a holistic center where she had all these other contracted individuals to do all this other kind of work. So I figured it wasn't a bad place for me to land given my situation and how much I needed to learn. And so I was introduced to all of these different modalities and part of what we were doing there was learning how to process the influence of emotion on the physical body. So it was kind of like a support group, but I found myself in a group with like what I, I hate to say it, but they're probably, none of them are probably alive right now. Um, extremely wounded, extremely damaged, um, or very sick individuals in terms of disease. So someone was gonna die and he was preparing to die. Someone else had HIV and was watching the person with full-blown AIDS die. Someone else had tried to commit suicide. So wow. I was like, holy crap. So, so you go into this this group of just yeah. some made talk about energy. There's yeah. some major people with major shit going on. Right. And I was in there kind of... That doesn't seem positive to me. Right. You wouldn't think it was, but it was fertile ground for me to step into what I had never really acknowledged was natural for me in terms of facilitation and supporting healing. So it was more like the teacher and I were together supporting these individuals. Wow, so you go into this group and all of a sudden after a few months you start realizing that you're actually helping the people that are there supposed to be learning. Yeah, I, I think... And are they, they're, they're dead now? Or? Well, <clears throat> I, I know a couple, few of them are. So I don't know who else is alive. Wow. I didn't stay in touch. But... That's pretty I, heavy though, Jill. It was, <laughs> a, it was very That's heavy. That's really heavy. But, you know, the healing arts is not exactly for the faint of heart if they're really going to get into working with people who need help. Did you notice as you started, when that shift happened, when you realized that you were kind of helping these people that you just described, did your pain start to lessen? Were you starting to feel better at that no, point? No, I was really managing a truly physically like an accident-induced injury. But I had to manage my... We'll say vim and vigor for life, given the fact that I could become a handicap if I wasn't Jesus. cautious. Did you drink? No. You're not a drinker, are you? No. Pills? Nothing. Weed? Nothing. Never, never anything. I've, I've never had a system that could, uh, handle what would loosen other people up. It's too literal to my system. Huh, so, when did you learn that? Really long time ago. In your high school? Yeah. I just never, never interested me. You know, my, my thing, now that I'm talking to you from 30 years later, <laughs> what has always been my most, like, consistent focus is an intention to be conscious. So, so anything, anything that would remove that. Yeah, didn't Any substance. Me. I feel like, I don't know if your audience is into or believes in past lives, I know. I don't care if they do or not. I think it's interesting. So. I know. I took drugs and 
alcohol and all of that all the way to its bitter end because I feel like it's just been there, done that, no interest from another time. Yeah. You know, just I came into this world having absolutely no interest in um, clouding well, you didn't my need clarity it in or... any way. Yeah. And it's uh, how early when did you say when you thought you realized that? Always my whole life since I was a little girl. Um, but I did, I did have the temptation because I was in a lot of physical pain. So, well, yeah, that's why I even asked that question. Cause it, it's someone, yeah. I, I know back pain is, is people with bad backs. My brother has one and when his is out, it's just, you know, they're going to throw painkillers at you. Um, but it didn't interest me. And, um, I was in pain without my family understanding why my or the entire level. childhood would you say or the level of pain yeah and even in college when I was rowing I had no concept because you know um, a coach is screaming at you to make it hurt um, when a rowing, <laughs> you're like it's hurting <laughs> rowing is one of these Hello, really high intensity sports and it is physically grueling and so I just didn't have any concept of what anyone else was experiencing. And I was already a good 15 years into managing pain. So uh, mind over matter was what my gift was at that point. Wow. I mean, Until I collapsed. I mean, chronic pain is a lot of people have suffered. And obviously yeah. there's, there's, there's a big backlash from that. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's very stress producing on the system. So once you got into this healing group, yeah, on the Cape, and you realize, okay, you do what? Is it? It's a month, three months, six year, months. six months. Yeah. And what kind of stuff are you do? That was my other question. What kind of stuff are you doing? Is it like well, hold, we were introduced holding to, energy gems and like crystals and well, we learned, Reiki. And, yeah, we learned about crystals. Uh, we learned about ritual. We learned about astrology, um, acupuncture, massage. Polarity therapy, yoga, um, uh, Native American um, rituals, um, ceremony, um, you name it, meditation, huge, meditation was huge, past life regression. I mean, it was... Past life regression, like God, was, we could do a whole podcast on I that. No, it was like... It was really the poo-poo platter of all that's out there. Um, you know, and it was an introduction for me. And I responded to it as if I was a fish to water. Like I knew, I felt like I knew about it, but I didn't know that I knew about it. So, you know, if you believe in past lives, which I was like, I couldn't not at that stage because all of it was familiar to me but I hadn't been exposed to it in this lifetime until that moment. And then it was just like natural for me. Like if you pick up a guitar as a musician, which you are, and you can play and there's no explanation for why you can play. Hmm. Some people, I mean, I took a practice. I think I have a little in, innate ability somewhere but tucked I'm in there. I'm thinking about someone who's a, you know, four-year-old piano player. Oh, okay. I thought you were doing <laughs> You know, or a guitar player. Like, what the heck? How could? How is that possible? 
Yeah. I just had a really interesting thought I wanted to share with you. Sure. It was about the idea that, because you said Native American, and immediately I thought about ayahuasca. Oh, yeah. And ayahuasca has become a big... Been there, done that. You, you've done an ayahuasca ceremony. Yeah. So, But then I just was thinking about alcohol and drug use, and I think that you know, all, all our emotional stuff that we deal with, the stuff that bothers us, usually stems from something in our past, right? Absolutely. And whether it's your past, maybe you believe past life, some people, you know, your childhood, something. And the alcohol and drugs in your adult life, depending on where you are on that severity spectrum, are really just little releases from that exactly. in your day-to-day -day life. They soothe you for they, a moment. Exactly. So you might just be, you know, usually you're running from something. People don't want to confront it, right? So then I, what, I just had that thought. And then I was like, well, ayahuasca is the granddaddy of releases for people, yeah. for a lot of people. And you said you did it. Did you did go to it. Peru? or I didn't do it in Peru, but I did do it with a um, shaman, and it was a two-day experience. And why I did it was because there was so much intentional ceremony and spiritual focus because it's understood as a medicine, as marijuana is or any of the things that we could um, any drugs are medicine but medicine specifically to um, introduce you to you and it's very much a spiritually controlled process uh, controlled or contained it's like a containers created lots of meditation lots of focus lots of intention about why you're doing it and what your um, desire is in terms of transformation from it. Yeah, you have to ask it, the yeah. ask the medicine for yeah. what you're... Yeah. So there's Can you talk about what were you looking prayer. for? Do you feel comfortable enough to... You know, I, yes and no. I don't know that I can speak about it. What was so interesting for me about it is that... Um, I didn't even realize. I, 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 while I was having the experience of being actually under the influence of it, I didn't realize I was under the influence because surprisingly, I, 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 I didn't meet any demons. There were no demons. I have also, came, I, ha, I did ayahuasca after doing, Doug, we could talk for days because I have you know, journeyed in some of the scariest places for people to go because I can only help people having been where they've been. So as a healer, I've had to um, walk through and experience pretty much anything and everything that I've ever been able to help somebody with. Otherwise, it doesn't feel safe to the other person. Right. I can't it's about be truth. there in theory. Right. They have yeah. to feel that I actually understand. And so I'm an experientially based human anyway. But um, so when I went into the ayahuasca, I'd already been, I had already been ordained master healer. I had already gone through initiations that um, allowed me to have contact with what 
channels open for fifth dimensional healing, non-duality. These are things that I could talk to you a lot about. Yeah, fifth dimensional healing. Well, it means that you're in the um, consciousness of God consciousness when you're healing. So that's... That's assuming there is a God or whoever your God is. God consciousness, consciousness that is truly in the embodiment of unconditionality. Okay. Um, takes a lot to get there. <laughs> yeah. And so by the time I got to ayahuasca, I had a very different experience, which was just a direct dialogue with my higher self. So I wasn't really aware of the fact that I had been affected. I kept thinking, nothing's happening because it was just like being in a high state of meditation except that it was more vivid or more um, specific and clear in terms of I asked the question, the question was answered by what I would say would be my God self. Um, but it didn't feel like it was rocking and rolling me at all, where other people were really in there. Well, you were in, a, 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 I would say, probably a grounded, much more grounded state. Yeah, and like I said, um, well healed after almost, at that point it must have been about 27 years of, wow, you know, like, grueling. It's amazing how trauma is, it's people, it affects people differently. Yeah, it I, I, I I was hit by a car when I was four years old, and I, I, I think, I've told my mom this recently, I think that my cancer was a direct result from the trauma of being hit by a car. Tell me more about that. I feel that we're going to be... No, I just, I do. I think that cancer, there's a direct correlation between cancer and trauma. People that were were victims. I'm always curious when I hear someone says, oh, they got diagnosed. I'm always... If you chase their story, their history of their life down, would there be some kernel of trauma in there? I don't know. That's... I was four years old. I was riding my bike. I came riding, uh, booking out of the driveway. I can still remember hearing the brakes and seeing the uh, car smack my thigh. I can still see the fender. It, like, threw me 20 feet. I broke my femur. I had a concussion. But I was four years old, so that was a pretty traumatic. Huge. To be hit by a car at that age. Yeah. So I've always maintained that. But, I mean, I think my my point was that people, I think, that ayahuasca, something like that, have deep trauma. You know, you went and did it. It sounds like it was you were already... An evolved self, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also was interested in knowing what ayahuasca, like I wanted to understand it because it was very trendy. It's been very trendy in a certain way and I wanted to know more about it. And I could ask it, that's how they talk about it, um, if this could be achieved in other ways because to me it was... I'd already been introduced to other ways to achieve some of the same kind of purification, but in a much gentler fashion. And so I was getting this feedback when I was asking, well, could I do this through a light body process? And that I don't want to go try to explain. But, and I was being given the answer yes. And then, so then when we were um, sort of come down from the whole experience, and I was talking to the shaman, I, I had taken notes, and I said, you know, this is what I learned while I was in the experience, and I just want to know if you also agree or you disagree. 
Um, and he was like, oh yeah, absolutely. And so I had, I was kind of doing a mm, discovery process with the medicine. And you know, I've worked in the Philippines. I, I learned from the healers in the mountains of the Philippines how to work with psychic surgery and that's a whole subject on it of its so, own. So you went to the Philippines to yeah. learn? And is it a different type of psychic surgery? Yes, it's big it's it's radically different than anything any American would understand. But it's basically quantum physics and magnetic healing at its most extreme version of development. What they can do, which you know, so many people have wanted to dispute or debunk in some way, is that they can open the physical body with the energy coming out of their hand and enter the body um, to um, take physical matter out without having to cut it or use a knife or anything. Because what they do is they liquefy the surface matter and that's a whole quantum wow this is some next level type healing healing. that's the fifth dimensional healing so that's what I mean by there's third dimensional fourth dimensional fifth dimensional fifth dimensional healing is doing something that we reserve as impossible like that's not possible and it's not possible within the framework that we understand reality but reality is based, based on, on perception. Perception. So <laughs> I agree. You're you're speaking. I agree. Yeah. I think it's. I mean, it, it, what we're talking about is an openness, is to understand that there is stuff around us. It's so interesting. You have to listen to um, a couple podcasts ago. I had uh, Jessica Hoyser, who's a Wiccan. Oh yeah. And she's fascinating. Yeah. And we had a great, uh, similar type conversations. Yeah. But it, it, it's, I think that this kind of stuff that we're talking about is really important because I think it's really becoming in the forefront. People are becoming much more open to it than they probably were when you first started. Yeah, I remember having to tell my parents that, don't worry, in the year 2000, now this is in 86, um, or 88, um, you know, people will be going to see someone to get their energy balanced similar to going to a salon or you know getting their nails done or getting a massage it's not going to be weird believe me and um (laughs) so you know they trusted me to some extent but it was hard for them pretty much all the way through and i could tell you millions of stories doug but, um, well, I think let's can we, let's go back to yeah. when you started doing it on. Let's bring it back to Nantucket because it, you, you yeah. know you did switch gears and yeah. that moment when you like open up an energy uh, store. Yeah, <laughs> I sh- like I hung my sh- shingle. Yeah, like it's just people are like you're doing what? Yeah, there was none of that. What was so bizarre for me is that okay, I was known as a carpenter on this particular crew. I leave the island for the you know most of the winter the bulk of the winter into spring and I come back and I'm living with someone who has I'm I've already started the process as a carpenter I lived with a woman who had MS who 
was wheelchair bound and couldn't take care of some of the basic needs at the in the household. So as an exchange, because we all have housing issues, issues here, I lived there free of rent for taking care of things that needed to be taken care of, including the grocery shopping and the cooking and like house maintenance and stuff like that. So I was around the house helping her. And well, then, you were learning how to be a healer and you didn't even know I it. I didn't even know it. And actually a friend of mine helped me move in and she left, she was, we were wa- after I dropped my stuff off, we walked out of the house and she started crying and she goes, I cannot leave you here. The house is so dark in every way. The energy is so heavy, it's gonna be horrible for you. And I said, don't worry, I'll clear it and clean it and raise it and, and I wasn't a healer yet. So I was a carpenter, but I had this kind of confidence that said, it's okay. And um, so I, I left for the year. She was so invested in me staying there that she just said, leave your bedroom just the way it is. Come back here. This is always your home. So it was kind of like a no-brainer. I could go off island and come back. And I came back, and she gave me another room, and she said, why don't you start your practice here? I said, okay. And so now the deal was I worked on her once a week. and Doing your all the stuff you had practiced yeah, and learned. And, and I did some other things for her, but once a week she got a session, which was basic energy balancing. Well, to both of our complete surprise, she went from a wheelchair to a cane, and I could move then. So I worked with her for a couple of years, and then I had an option to move to a house that it could accommodate my office better and she was capable of driving again so that freed me up to move on and to move into a a kind of to a greater extent commitment to the work wow it's it's so interesting that it started kind of your that started the path yeah so um that what was the name of the woman her name was nancy adam nancy adam yeah she was a photographer and she lived here and um i i stayed with her um but i you know i she's passed now she's left the island i don't think she's passed yet um she lives in a assisted living facility off island well, it'd be cool for her to somehow hear this. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, people's yeah people's full circle. We we had our full circle moment before she left. You know, she always thought of me kind of like a daughter. So, I I kept tabs on her. I continued to stay connected to her. Um, but what was most interesting, getting back to the beginning of the conversation, is that. Um, I went from carpenter to healing a practitioner, and it was me, if I were a surfer, somehow I got in front of a wave before I really believed I was a surfer and had to surf it. And so I just kept on growing and learning and learning and learning and learning because people kept calling and kept wanting me to help them. And I was kind of taken back by the speed at which my practice exploded into full-time work. 
was really within a couple months. And wow, that's uh, yeah, it was crazy for me. And and so I felt responsible to actually learn more. And Dr. Walker continued to be a resource for me in terms of direction. Um, but he's, was he a mentor almost? Sort of. His wife wouldn't let him take me on as a teach as a student, but he directed sort of. I want you to study with this doctor in Florida, and he called the doctor up and said, "Take her on. She's something you know you want to work with her." And um, so, path. If you're on your path, if it's the right path, it's like your destiny path. Doors fly open for you. I had to be courageous enough to say yes all the way along, but they always opened. And Nantucketers said to me when I, because I was a little more confused and uncomfortable than they were, because I said to them, seriously now, I was a carpenter. How come you're comfortable with coming to see me as a healer? And <laughs> yeah, because it does seem like, wait, yeah. Jill, she just was building a deck, yeah. and now she's going to work on my energy? Yeah, and um, the feedback <laughs> I got, which was reassuring, was, um, I guess I would just say I was waiting for you to know that that's what you were. So most of the time, people just told me it seemed perfectly natural because they already felt me to be that person. Wow. That's a, that's almost a that's a pretty powerful position to be put in, I think. If if you know when you consider the vulnerability that people come to you with, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's a lot. That's a that's a I would think that um in those kind of scenarios, not you in particular, but it sort of has a kind of a guru-y kind yeah. of vibe to it which you don't you don't come up personally you don't come off to me like that at all good you don't good. but i would think in that world that's it can i can see how those lines could get blurred pretty easy well yeah i could say a whole lot about that um the you know i've always wished i had the gift of humor or the gift of music or entertaining <laughs> people that would have been sort of my biggest Dream. Well, here's what I can tell you about humor. It's just a deflection for pain. <laughs> Talk to any com- comedian. <laughs> Actually, that's funny because a comedian told me once I could be a humorist because yes. she said humor is really only funny if it's got if its roots in truth. Exactly. So, but I say that because what gift I know I have is the gift of people trusting me because I've been trusted since I was very young with things that were so um, evidently noticeably beyond what anyone should trust me with. Really? Can you yeah. t- can you divulge what that yeah, was? Yeah, one of the things when I reflect back, I thought it was just normal, nobody like, just didn't seem like a big deal, but now when I reflect back I'm like, oh my god. Um, I was given the keys because I, I was into media production and I liked doing video work. And in high school, I did. And we had a TV studio as part of the um, trades option in the high school experience in our high school. And our high school was huge. My graduating class was nearly 800. So 
three, I mean, it's like 2,200 kids in the school with, and not to mention the fact that I was staying extra overtime in the TV studio producing these videos, and the I was given the keys to the building so I could lock up when I left, and I was 17. And I had keys to the entire building. And that, now when I look back, is pretty peculiar. Oh, I thought you were going to... I mean, that's, that is a lot. I thought you were going to divulge something, some, like, heavy well, <laughs> emotional stuff. Well, that's what heavy, I was thinking. Like, But I, I get that... The beginning of my practice, I was 23, maybe, and 60-year-old people were coming to me to help process the grief of their losing their parents. That felt odd, really odd. I, you know, I because you hadn't understood I it. I couldn't yet. understand it yet. Hmm. Um, trust. My parents never gave me a curfew. I was the designated driver. I had a car before anybody else. You know, there was just. I just had. I was just trusted. You're stable. Yeah, maybe that's part of it. Yeah, but you had your. I mean, obviously, you've had your. Well, own I wasn't journey. into drugs, which helped, I guess, as a kid. But um, I just noticed, like, in my life, I can't come up with any great example. But do you have any regrets so far? In my life, in yeah. general. You know, at, from the healer's perspective, no, because I believe everything, even if you perceive it as a mistake. If you perceive it from the healing perspective, it was an opportunity to grow and learn. So I would say no. See, now that response is a very interesting response because I feel like whether you believe it or not is irrelevant. You just, because you just, if, if you don't believe it, I, I would just keep telling myself that, me, Doug, yeah. till I believed it. Yeah. That's just the way I am. Yeah. You know, some people just can't get there, though, which is interesting. I just, I hearing that yeah. just made me think that. I would just keep telling myself that. I have one that, regret. Till I could. Because I'm writing a book right now. Oh. And it's taken me all this time to do it. And I'm finally kind of beginning my journey of putting down on paper my original thoughts, which I have, I, I think that that, you might, I might define myself in many ways as an original thinker, but I lost an opportunity that would have put me on that track a long time ago, and I kind of wonder. The book track? Yeah. Okay. I kind of wonder if I would have done all this healing work if I had, when I was in college, I wrote a, I wrote a paper on um, a subject that was considered original enough that it was selected to be presented at a national conference. And the thing was is I needed to present it and I was, the, the paper needed to be polished, but I, the whole idea of public speaking freaked me out. And instead of the teacher helping me get there, she just said, next. And I didn't seize that opportunity. And I know if I had seized that opportunity, I would have had more confidence in my mind as a thinker. And I okay. have always been more oriented to trusting the feeling, creating, doing part of my hand. My hands are the part I trust the most, never my mind as much. Okay. That's interesting. So it's taken me a long time to kind of 
feel like, okay, now I can talk about the things I know. <laughs> and now you're, what, how do, I was just thinking, how do I, how would I describe you? Is, is it a healing, a healing artist? Um, what would be the description? You know, I am a healer, but I think I'm a visionary. And um, in that, I see into the future easily. And, you know, like I said, I told my parents, in the future, this is not going to be strange or weird. And from the time I was very young, I knew my purpose on the planet was to raise consciousness. And I never really didn't think that was true. I just didn't exactly know how I was going to do it. Huh. From age four, I can remember back to age four, knowing that's what I was here to do. That's pretty cool. And now I, I mean, I've done it. You know, some, I was talking to somebody at the Nantucket Project and they were asking me a question and I said, well, you know, after something like at least 30,000 clients, um, and he goes, wow, that many? And I was thinking, no, it's more than that. And I started to calculate How and I could people? say, I've probably had at least 70,000 sessions and you know, in 70,000 conversations, you learn something. Yeah. We started to talk about this at the Nantucket Project. Yeah. That, um, you know, people are searching. Yeah. It's in that, I think, and they need someone, whether it's a therapist, whether it's an energy worker. It's just, it's an important part. And I think, in your work, I think it's people just being open. You have to be open and willing to want it. Yeah. And, you know, you just asked me a question and I kind of, deflected a little bit but you said what would I call you and it's interesting you say that because now I say sometimes I say this to people but I'm an architect for redesign in people's lives for their soul so I believe people incarnate and they are here with a destiny and a purpose and the challenge is really to get on track with that and you have to kind of delete all the programming that you got when you were a kid that pulls you often very far away because you want to be approved of in some way and understood by those who are programming you like family and friends and um, society. But to be authentically who you were born to be sometimes takes a lot of peeling back and um, rediscovering that truth. Yeah, it's, I, I agree with you. And so I don't think I'm that far away from the original intention of architect. It's just a different kind of architect. It's a different art kind of, because I do run it. My life, what I do with my work now, most people come to see me for life renovations. They know they need a change they know their impulse at a deep place inside of them is telling them that something doesn't sit well that they're not as happy as they know they're born to be that they're not as passionate about their life as they want to be or they see others are and they come because they feel stuck in some way they feel depressed in some way they feel anxious in some way um, they feel scared to do what they need to do. And I set up a very doable 
contained structure for them to meet their heart and soul's desires. And it's a renovation. It's like when you take on a project with your house and you know what you want that house to provide for you so that you feel supported and um, live in a kind of ease, style, and comfort that you want to be living in. But um, you need to revamp whatever the situation is to accommodate the version of you that you are currently living in and or want to be living. So I'm I'm a mentor, I'm a guide, I'm a healer when there's trauma that's really showing up as repeated like a rut of some sort and um, people want to get out of that and you know there are other people that deal with bones now as I used to deal with all that stuff but I don't do as much body work but yeah I was just gonna say that Nantucket specifically too it's an you know an island that functions in excess so I'm hyper aware of that and I can see you know I mean every community has people living you know in middle of Ohio have similar problems but some somehow Nantucket because it is an island I think that there's an intensity built into the change and the way the island functions so I can see how like energy work is even more important yeah and when it comes down to my passion which is consciousness an island is so defined by its obvious boundaries that what goes around comes around and if you believe in karma or you just live in the experience of being on an island you don't burn bridges here and think that that's not a problem you have to consciously you know deal with each moment otherwise it comes back to bite you tenfold in new york city you can be uh you can be a little more anonymous a lot more and uh speaking of the topic we're reinventing yourself Mm -hmm. i was always amazed in new york city you could reinvent yourself like five times over i worked with a guy i'll never forget this i was a cater waiter working with him he was a big strong dude very manly four years later i'm going past this club and he's this flamboyant club promoter guy. Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa. The guy had obviously gone through some changes, but he just had reinvented himself. And then and then he was in the New York Times as like the, this new party promoter, New York's hottest party promoter. Mm-hmm. And it was just blew my mind that you could, you could reinvent yourself like that. Yeah. And people can, and I guess back to what we originally started talking about is Nantucket is a place like we spoke of that people can reinvent themselves out here and start new careers well if they're committed to the island and people recognize that they're committed to the island they may have more than one contribution to make yeah and that's welcomed if it's authentic and sincere i hope the podcast is that i'm hoping that does that that's what this whole thing is what we're doing right now jill yeah we're doing it (laughs) creating trying you know connection i I love it i'm so into it and i think it uh i'm hoping that the island digs it (laughs) well i was just smiling because you know i met you quite a long time ago and i feel like this conversation we're getting to know each other a little bit yeah for sure yeah yeah of course that's part of living on an island too you know that's one thing that's been great about 
inside the whales. I've gotten to know these people, and it also offers an opportunity for people that might see you peripherally. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, yeah. it's kind of cool. So that's it, Jill. We did an hour and fifteen minutes. I feel like we could keep going, but we'll wrap yeah, it up. We'll wrap it up. Good. <laughs> well, thanks All right. very much. Yeah. Welcome to your first podcast. On the island. Pretty impressive, I'd say, right? Jill Meridian, uh, energy healer. Uh, I love how she described herself uh, after we finished the interview. She she kind of likened herself as an architect for your mind, you know, helping you reorganize and change and break patterns, which, uh, you know, I keep coming back to this idea, you know, after the conversation we had the next day, I was thinking about how Nantucket just is filled with so many different energies and the island gets bombarded in the summertime. And you do kind of need to take note of all the different things going on. And sometimes we get bogged down with that. And someone like Jill can help you straighten that out. You know, I'll be upfront with you guys. I've actually sat in a session with Jill. So I've had the privilege of going to work with her. And uh, she walks the walk and was helpful. And so whatever you got going on, you know, I think that the uh, in the end of the day, Jill is someone that is servicing the island. She's bringing something that the island needs, and we don't want to lose that, Jill. So thank you for being here, and thank you for donating the time to come and talk on Inside the Whale. And I hope uh, hope you guys get a little better feel for what uh, someone in the healing arts does. You know, healing arts was uh, 20 years ago, this kind of aloof thing that no one could really put their finger on, but there's a reason that... Uh, People like Jill are still around doing the work because we need it. You know, some people start life with a little carry-on baggage and some people got uh, full carts full of baggage and you need some people to help sort it out. I don't know. I'm probably, I sit somewhere in, in between. I probably have a, a carry-on and maybe a lunch sack or something. I don't know. But, uh, you know, knowing that she's there. And uh, if you want to learn more about Jill, you can check out her website, Synergenic Way. That's SynergenicWay.com. Check it out. Uh, that's it, folks. That's episode 38. We did it. So that being said, let's get a, give it back to the monarchs. They can take us out. Get out there, rake some leaves. Enjoy the fall on Nantucket. This is what we live for, folks. The island's quiet, beautiful. Go out and take a walk, stare at the ocean, feel its energy. Love it. All right, we'll see you on the next one, guys. Sat at his feet in a stone cave and tried to breathe a sleep. I was ready to move. I was ready to move. to move I was ready to
Come on.